You're getting the most out of being at a game with American Express. The card member entrance, the lounge, and out tip off. See how to elevate your live sports experience at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Ah! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. Welcome into another edition of the Hangtime Podcast. I'm your host, Seku Smith, here in Atlanta, trying to figure out where we are in this strange 2020 calendar year. Uh, a short break between the end of the season in the bubble and now the restart. I guess it's our second restart, the start of the 2020 2021 season coming up next month. But in the meantime, here on the podcast, we've tried to help dive off into some other areas, talk to some other people who have been integral to the NBA um, and, and a huge part of the fabric of the league over the years. Today, our guest, special guest, um, one of my all-time favorite human beings, reading about him, hearing about him from my dad and my uncle who grew up watching Pistons games, Dave Bean. Um, I call him Mr. Mayor respectfully. He's got a new book out called Attack in the Rim. And it's, it's about his journey as a high school and college star to an NBA superstar, then to a business leader and ultimately a, a big city mayor in the United States of America in Detroit. Uh, Mr. Bing, thanks for joining us. I appreciate your time. How are you doing, sir? I am doing great. Thank you so very much. And I'm looking forward to this. It's funny, you know, growing up in Michigan and, and obviously, you know, you, you really don't get a choice, I guess, to be a Pistons fan. You, you usually your parents or your grandparents explain to you why you are a Pistons fan and, and you follow suit. And I heard your name so much growing up, you know, I'm, I'm a, a bad boys Piston era fan. So I, I grew up watching a newer iteration of the Pistons, but your name came up so often. I, I was like, man, what did Dave Bing do? that had all these people <laughs> so caught up. So, you know, and you go back and look at the history of it, the style that you played, it's almost like it was kind of ahead of its time. But do you look back at it now, at your game and the way you played and, and figure that it was maybe ahead of the curve in terms of style? I would definitely uh, agree with that. Um, you know, my, my style was running, driving to the hoop, uh, never being afraid. And you've got to challenge the big guys. The big guys used to tell me, this is my space. Don't come in here. <laughs> you come in here, you'll get hurt. So, you know, but I, that never bothered me because I grew up in, in, in Washington, D.C. And basketball was a D game. And so I learned the game in D.C. on the playground and, you know, through high school and then going on to college. But uh, I took all of the skills uh, that I learned uh, as a young guy and brought them to the NBA. And, and I think I would be a good player today in the NBA because of my style. You know, I could run, I could shoot, I could jump. 
That's what the game's about today. It's about athletes. Um, we got unbelievable athletes in the NBA today. So when you try to make the comparison between my era and this era here, it's a difference in that it was a, a different game because it was more of a team game back then. But today, these guys are so are so skilled uh, as an athlete uh, that uh, they, they do some amazing things. So I still enjoy watching them. The era you played in, you know, so many great players. I remember reading about all the different, you know, personalities and players that populated the league back then. And it was, I almost feel like we give it short shrift. We don't, we don't recognize just how dynamic players were back then. I know the game is different now. The training and, and everything else is different. But when I see Hall of Fame players such as yourself, I always crack up with people thinking like, oh, it was some gang, you know, floor-bound game with these little people that play. And I'm like, have you seen some of these guys like physically? They are certainly the 1% of 1% of human athletes, you know, from that era. Yeah, I think I was fortunate in my era because I had a chance to play against, I think, the most dominant player ever, Will Chamberlain. Yeah. Uh, the most successful player ever, Bill Russell. Uh, one of the most complete players, Oscar Robertson. And so, you know, playing against those guys um, was, was a real joy. And I just, I can't forget Elgin Baylor because we're from the same neighborhood, right. same high school. <laughs> Uh, but, I mean, you, you talk about unbelievable, talented guys back then. All of those guys could have played in the game today. You've done such an interesting job, too, of staying connected with players throughout the generations, whether it's as a mentor um, or father figure. I, I know Jalen Rose wrote one of the forwards for the book, which was tremendous. You know, you and Chet Walker as a backcourt, you know, were, was something that, that Pistons fans talk about you know, to this day, did you feel a sense of responsibility, even as you were playing, as you were coming up, that you had to be kind of that, that figure that would mentor the guys that would come after you and, and kind of a role model for players of future generations? I always felt like that. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, players in my era, we, um, we not only competed against each other, um, but we were friends off the court. Uh, because it was um, it was more family than anything else. It wasn't like the game today where guys make so much money that they can do all things they want to do on an individual standpoint. Back then, we had to do things together. So after the season, a lot of times we'd get together, we'd visit each other uh, in, uh, in each other's home cities, et cetera, et cetera. And we just established friendships and relationships that carried us from then to now. I mean, there are so many guys that I'm still friendly with and we, we constantly are in contact with, with each other, just trying to figure out where we are in our lives. I know anytime somebody starts reflecting and, and talks about writing a book, you know, you have to kind of dig into your own memory banks and your own story. Um, and you mentioned the dedication of the book. Obviously, you you mentioned your parents and kind of the example they set for you. And I'm curious, when you talk about Juanita and Hasker Bing and what they meant and the example they set for you, did you feel that early on, like as a kid, you understood that, hey, they were they were putting you on a different path maybe than everybody else? Absolutely. Um, my parents are from the South, both of them are South Carolina. Um, you know, they, they grew up at a time um, just after slavery. And, um, you know, they were farmers. And my dad uh, left South Carolina 
to look for a better life, moved to Washington, D.C., and started his family. But uh, the culture uh, that he brought with him and that he established in, in our family and in the neighborhood uh, was one of respect, one of dignity, one of hard work, uh, one of high expectations. So those were things that were preached to me all through my childhood. Um, you know, you, you can't you can't be average. You know, I, I expect more of you than to be average. And you've got to make sure my, that my parents never graduated from high school. So education became important uh, in, in conversation around the dinner table. Uh, church was very important. Um, you know, your neighborhood and your community was very important. Um, you know, help your neighbors out. And, and, and all of those little small things that I think are part of, of, of my life today. So you never forget where you come from. You knew how hard it was. You knew what the expectations were. And you had to try to live up to them. It's such a an interesting thing you mentioned earlier, too, about players today and just kind of the, the finances of the NBA have allowed guys to go off into their own directions, maybe individually or partnering with people outside of the league. Um, have you sensed at all, just with this current generation of players, led obviously by LeBron James, Chris Paul, and some of these other guys who are true leaders of the league um, as players, have you sensed that they've kind of shifted? You know, you see LeBron with his school and some of the charitable things these guys are doing in their own communities. Have Has there been a shift in, in the players attention to those sorts of uh, of ideals and, and activities away from basketball? Yes, and I am very pleased to see that. Um, you know, it would be very easy to live in your own bubble um, and not worry about anybody else. I make all of this money. I got this stardom. I got everything that I could ever want in life. And so I'm not worried about anybody else. But I was so proud of these guys um, this year in terms of, of getting engaged and, and the platform. They now understand the platform that they have because now with social media, um, with, with the game being global, uh, with all the people that are following them, uh, listening to them, supporting them, they now, uh, I think, feel comfortable, number one, financially. Right. Um, uh, you know, they can do what they want to do and say what they want to say. In my era, you had to be careful what you did and what you said and the yeah. kind of lifestyle that you led because, um, you know, you, you can get cut very, very <laughs> easy. So you didn't have the financial wherewithal to feel safe. These guys not only feel safe, but now they are making statements and getting engaged in, in the politics and the things that's going on in this country. And I'm so proud of positions that they've taken. You, you mentioned that engagement. And you, again, as, as I mentioned, you were ahead of your time just in style as a player, but certainly to go off into business and, and be as successful as you were and then into politics, which is a whole other realm, especially in a, in a Rust Belt city like Detroit at that time, you know, when, when the country was changing and, and the economic dynamics around the country were changing. What led you to believing that that was something that you could do effectively? And then what gave you the, the confidence? What was the inner compass you had for making those sorts of decisions that would seem so radical, you know, for, for most people? Well, I think the first it was home. 
you know, growing up in, in the kind of home that I grew up in uh, has been with me for a lifetime. Um, as an active player, I never wanted to coach. Hmm. If I were going to stay in basketball after retirement, I wanted to be a general manager. Contrary to what people think about uh, education in urban America, meaning black, black schools, black high schools, well, I had a good education. And I carried that on to, to Syracuse. Um, so academically uh, and intellectually, I think I was ready to do something different outside of running up and down a basketball court. But there were no black general managers in, in the NBA uh, when, when I was finishing my career. So I think that's probably not going to be a place for me. So I, I studied, I read, I prepared, I worked in the off season because I said, if I can't be a general manager, I, I want to run my own company one day. I want to own and run my own company. So I prepared myself for that. So after two years after um, retirement, I started my own company. And we grew from a startup company with four people to a company after 28 years of about 1,400 people. Um, we started uh, with, with the first year sales of about $2 million. By the time uh, I finished, we were over $300 million. And 80% of my employees were African-American because they, I'm in Detroit, and that's an African-American city. So the impact that I had on, on the people getting a good job, my payroll was 45 to $50 million a year. Wow. So uh, I was paying people very competitive wages and, and helping people uh, take care of their families. So that was very important to me. The politics is something we can talk about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's short term because, you know, I came to Detroit. I was drafted uh, as a number two player. Uh, from a political standpoint, I was also drafted uh, because I, I, when I retired from my business, I'm 64 years old at that time, and I was and I had been successful. So it's time now to kick back and enjoy life. But we had a lot of things, negative things going on in Detroit. And so um, the business community and the community at large came to me. So we got to find somebody to come after Mayor Kilpatrick. You know, his, his time is done. It's been very negative the last several months, blah, blah, blah. Here's a young brother that has so much potential, smart, uh, engaging, you name it all. He had everything going for him, but he went off track. Uh, everybody lost confidence. And so we were looking who's, who can take his place. And I was on a committee, on a selection committee, looking to do that. And every, everybody kept coming looking at me. We think you're the right guy. I mean, you got a business career, people trust you, you've been very engaged in the community, you ran a business, blah, blah, blah. And I'm saying, oh, wait a minute, this is not for me. I'm not a politician. But they said people trust you and like you, so uh, we think it ought to be you. And it took me a couple of months, and then I decided, okay, I'm going to try this. This is bigger than me. Mm. Um, the city needs somebody uh, that they can trust. The business community will come, continue to invest in the city, et cetera, et cetera. But it was a tough, tough time because we were in so much debt as a city that there was no way that we could get away from filing for bankruptcy. In the book, it was one of the more fascinating um, passages I read about Coleman Young, who's a longtime mayor of Detroit, one of the most powerful men um, in the country when he was in office. I mean, you, you couldn't move in the state of Michigan without knowing who Coleman Young was. And for him to come to you 
and basically ask you if you were interested in being a successor was was nutty to me because I'm thinking, how would you say no to a guy that powerful at that time? What made you decide that that wasn't the time to do it, that that wasn't the right time to take that leap? I think uh, because my company was growing, people needed me to, uh, in that leadership role in my company uh, to, to keep their jobs and take care of their families. And so that was more important to me than anything else because I knew I was having a direct positive impact on, on their lives. And, uh, and Coleman and I knew each other very well. We respected each other. He knew how much I cared about the people in this city and he felt I was the right guy that, to, to succeed him. But I knew I wasn't ready for that. And um, so I had to let him know that uh, uh, thank you, I respect what you think of me, but this is not the right time for me. I got to stay where I am. And, and he respected that. Yeah, this is such a polarizing time when you look at, you, you talked about the social impact that the players, current players in the league have had leading up to this, this current election, this November 3rd election, big cities where there were you know, massive turnouts of black voters have apparently swung, you know, the election in favor of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Were you surprised at all that Detroit and Philadelphia and some of these cities stepped up the way they did in this election, given given the ramifications and what was at stake? Not at all. Um, we had a country in so much turmoil, so much divisiveness uh, based on the perceived leadership of Trump, whether it was Atlanta, whether it was uh, L.A. or New York or Detroit or Philadelphia, you know, all of those major urban cities, Chicago, that has a significant black and brown population. The people were just tired of the BS that, that was being promoted by uh, the Trump administration. People had we were just tired of it. No, none of us wanted another four years of that. And there are enough people, um, you know, even white people, uh, whether it was women or whether, um, you know, it was men at a certain age group. I think everybody was just tired of, of dealing what we had to deal with in a pandemic. And so, uh, you know, with all of the things that were going on over the last two or three years, um, I was so proud to see so many people from so many major cities come out and say, we're going to vote. A lot of folks just didn't vote uh, in 16, but came out and voted in 20 in, in a major way. And now we got a chance to make uh, a corrective, a corrective move back to get us get our country in the right in the right direction. Yeah. What one of the major takeaways from reading this book too, and and it's attacking the rim. Um, Dave Bing's story, the journey from an NBA legend to a business leader and ultimately a big city mayor for, for a Hall of Fame NBA player. Um, the leadership component seems like it's something that's either in you or not. You can go back and look at a guy's history and, and, and trace it all the way back to when he first started playing sometimes. You either have that that gene or, or that like component to you or not. And I'm wondering over your years, both on and off the court in business and, you know, in politics, whatever you've done, is that something that you recognize? Cause it's, it felt that way in the book that that's just something that a guy either has or doesn't. I absolutely agree with you. I can go back uh, to high school. I was captain of the team at, as a sophomore on the team uh, in college, I was captain of the team. 
uh, in pro ball, I was captain of the team, um, running my own business. Uh, you know, I was the top guy. <laughs> Uh, and politics as mayor, you know, <laughs> the top person. So yeah, I think it's a gene that that was in me, and, and I agree with you. It's not something that you you get trained to do. Um, it's either in you or not. Now you can enhance it by by doing some different things, but it, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. It's there or it isn't. Yeah, you you you've left a, a large legacy, obviously for players in in your adopted hometown of Detroit. Um, I happen to know quite a few of them, work with some of them, Steve Smith, um, Jalen Rose, who I've known for years since we were in high school. I'm a year ahead of him in high school. These guys have all embraced kind of that same attitude about being, you know, leaders in their community. Derek Coleman, another one that people don't talk about, but who I know from friends of mine who live in Detroit is a very, you know, proactive member of the Detroit community. Did, was that something that you went about doing? You know, I, I've heard stories of you, you know, showing up to St. Cecilia's and, you know, dealing with these guys or them coming to you for advice and, and mentorship. Has that always been something that was important to you to make sure that Detroit, a city rich in human resources when it comes to basketball players, guys who have matriculated to the NBA? Was that a part of what you wanted to make sure you imparted on those guys? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, all those names that you just threw out of uh, young guys that I saw grow up and become just great basketball players, but also leaders in the community. I mean, it's like they, they are family. They are all connected together. I mean, Steve, I've known him since high school. Derek right. is, is my adopted son. <laughs> right. Jalen is my adopted son. You know, Chris, I got to know pretty well. So, I mean, I can just throw out so many names. Uh, basketball was, was, Detroit was rich with basketball talent, but I, I, I think we're in a city that's primarily African-American. You know, guys are proud to say that that's where I'm from. That's, that's who I am. That's what made me uh, into who I am. And so um, I've always stayed connected with, with, with the young guys. And so, you know, when it was done, when I was done in politics, that's when I knew I also had to go into a, a program that would keep me connected with uh, somebody that was very important, young black boys. And so um, when, when we look at the BYI, the Bing Youth Institute, and what we are trying to do is to impact those young men who may not be great athletes, but they're great people. And we've got to give them a venue for them to grow, mature, and be all that they can be. You uh, you mentioned earlier about, you know, at any number of times you could have laid back a little bit. You could have stepped back and relaxed and hit the beach or the golf course after your playing career was over, after you'd run your business for all those years, or after you stepped out of the mayor's office. What drives you? What keeps you grinding like this at this stage of your life to, to keep impacting people and, and to keep having um, – an influence on, on your community? As a youngster, I, you know, I, get, I got tired of hearing all the negative stuff about us. <laughs> and uh, that still um, frustrates me today. Like, we don't care about each other. And, you know, all you do is hear the negative things about young boys and, and what they're not doing, what they're not capable of doing, et cetera, et cetera. We need to change the conversation. 
given the right environment, given the right support, given the right kind of education background, they can be anything that they want to be. They just need the support, the love, that hand on uh, on their shoulder and said, this is, you're going in the wrong direction here, buddy. You know, you got to correct yourself or you're going to be like some of these other guys that you talk about all the time. So having these young men in our program, they're going to become leaders uh, in the state. And so I'll be gone when they come back and have the impact that I think that they're going to have because we're giving them the kind of love, the kind of attention, the kind of advice that's necessary for them to be a success in life. And I have no doubts in my mind about it that uh, this generation of young men that we're dealing with are all going to be successful. That's awesome stuff. It's, just, it's a fantastic book, the, the, the read. Dave being attacking the rim, I just... Again, I, I read Elgin Baylor's book, and when I went through it and realized that you guys were from the same neighborhood and the same high school, I thought to myself, somebody in D.C. And, and around there must have been, I mean, they must have been scratching their head to have two guys with the careers that you both had. That's amazing. Um, what, what a heck of a neighborhood that must have been. Yeah, now we got Kevin Durant. He's from the right. same neighborhood. So we had Austin Carr, we had Adrian Danley. I mean, I can go on the name of a lot of the brothers that came up together. Yeah, it's, a, it's amazing. Um, and, and I think, you know, you guys need to be commended, obviously, for doing what you do, but also sharing these stories. A lot of people wouldn't hear about them. These are history books, ultimately. It's not just about one individual story, but really it's the intertwined history of men who were coming of age and, and becoming icons at a pivotal time in this country's history, especially for black people. So I appreciate all that you've done and all that you've done. Thank you for joining us here on the Hang Time Podcast. Well, thank you so very much. My pleasure being with you and meeting you. Thank you. Dave Bing, Hall of Famer as a human being and a ball player. Thank you for joining us on the Hang Time Podcast. We'll see you next time. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, Shoot that, shoot that! And even, Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge, now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. See how to elevate your live sports experience at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply.